Good morning, Iwu. Well, I have a story I want to start with you. It was fall, and um, it was a Sunday night, and our church was having Sunday night service. Now, I remember nothing about what happened in the service. Uh, what, what I do remember is we were going through a good season at the church, and we were building uh, an addition to the church. We were tripling the size of the church, which sounds like a lot, but it wasn't because the church was really small, and we just needed more space. And so we were sort of a construction zone back behind the church. There were steel framework going up and piles of dirt, and, and uh, it was a Sunday night. I remember nothing about the service. What I remember is what happened after the service. My daughter, Carrie, was eight years old, and she had invited her best friend, Jana, to church a number of times. This is the first time Jana had ever come to church on a Sunday night in the fall during construction season. And after church, a bunch of us got together and decided we were going to go out for pizza. By the way, in those days, you had Sunday morning service, and then you came back to church on Sunday night. And most people, I'm convinced, came to church on Sunday night to decide where they were going to go out to eat with their friends. I don't think they cared that much about the sermon. What they wanted to know is, are we going to go get pie at Village Inn tonight? Or are we going to go get burgers someplace else? Or are we going to go to Happy Joe's Pizza across town? And that night, we decided we were going to go to Happy Joe's Pizza. And so Patty headed out with a bunch of people. And I, as the pastor, had to hang around until everybody had left the building. And so they left, and I turned out the lights. And, and I locked the door, and I hopped in the car, and I drove up to Happy Joe's. And as I walked in, the game room was off to the right, and I could hear our kids playing in there, lots of kids in the game room having a good time. I looked in the back and saw a couple of tables of people hanging back there, and they had uh, Cokes on the table. They were drinking and talking and having a good time, and I sat down with them. I began to tell stories. We all began to tell stories. We're laughing. We're having a great time. I was doing the pastor thing, just connecting with people, and the manager came up to me and said, is John Bray here? I raised my hand. He says, you have a phone call. So I went, but this was back in the days before cell phones. And so the, all you had was the, fo- the phone attached to the wall. So I go get the phone and I say, hello, this is John. And a voice on the other line says, dad, you forgot me. And so you see, I had assumed that Patty had taken Carrie and Jana with her and that when I arrived, they were in the playroom with the kids playing. And I got back there, and I'm sitting having a good time, and when I showed up, she assumed that I had brought Carrie and Jana with me, and that I dropped them off in the game room when they were playing, and I was busy doing good stuff, doing pastor stuff, and had no idea I'd forgotten my daughter and her friend, <laughs> whose parents had entrusted her to our care. And I don't know, most of you are not parents yet. There may be some parents in the room, but I will tell you, if you don't know, it, that's a massive parent fail to forget your kid in a construction zone, in the dark, go across town, leave them there, and they have to go. She, she went to the gas station near the church, figured out that we were either at Village Inn for pie or at Happy Joe's for pizza, got the number from the phone book, called us. I was pretty proud of her finding me, actually. Massive parent fail. Here's the question I have for you. What are you forgetting? I'm pretty sure you forget stuff. Jen, could you help me here for a second? This is a lost and found box. (laughs) 
water bottle, water bottle, water bottle, water bottle, water bottle, water bottle. You didn't drink enough of this one. Coffee cup. Has not appeared to have coffee in it. I'm not sure why it's here. Gloves, 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 hat. Somebody forgot a nice infinity scarf. Coffee cup. A glove that doesn't match other gloves. A sweater. An umbrella. Whoever's been missing their glasses, they're here. Um, this appears to be an earring. Something from the end of a keychain. A roll of film that's already been exposed. So those of you who are in photography, this might be yours. Water bottle. Other stuff gets left behind. Coats get left behind. A pack of adult diapers got left behind once. Not used. Lots of stuff gets left behind. If any of this is yours, you can come and claim it after chapel. Some of you are going, that's where my glasses went. We all forget stuff. Patty once forgot my birthday. <laughs> it wasn't for long, she remembered by the next day. Not that I remember or anything. It's clear that the first icy day of the year, some of you forget that ice is slippery. I've watched this drive and we put on our brakes at the normal time and slide right through the stop sign. We forget, some of you forget to call home. Mom reminds you. I want to ask you to dig a little deeper today to think about something else you may have forgotten, something more important than a water bottle. More important than forgetting an assignment. More important than leaving glasses behind. I think sometimes we forget the power of our influence. I think sometimes we forget that how we live matters. Because we forget the power of our influence, we don't think how we live matters all that much because we don't think we matter that much. We don't think how we live matters that much, so we forget the importance of personal discipline. We don't think how we, matters that, how we live matters that much, so we don't spend time in the Word to, to find guidance from the Lord about how we ought to live. We don't think we how we live matters all that much, so we forget the importance of the moment, of obedience in this moment, compounded by obedience in the next moment, and by obedience in the next moment, by obedience in the next moment. And we forget that moment by moment by moment by moment, obedience builds the reality of our life. We forget stuff like that. And the question that comes to me today is why? Why do we forget that? And I suggest that it's because we've forgotten something far more important. And I'd like to talk to you about that for the rest of the time we have together. I want to take us to the book of Revelation. 
The Apostle John was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and it's late in his life, and it was a Sunday, and, and he has this vision one day. We know it is the book of Revelation. God gives him a message, and when we think of the book of Revelation, we think it's some document to tell us about a future timeline, about the return of Christ, and it includes stuff like that. But we sometimes forget that Revelation was written in a specific place at a specific time to be delivered to a specific group of people, and it was some church is in Asia Minor that the, the, the Lord has a message for. In fact, the few, first few chapters are, are comprised of letters that Jesus tells John to write and to deliver these churches because he's got something to say to them. And for the most part, he has something good to say to them, and then he has some correcting to do, and then he ends up with some promises. We're going to look at one of those letters today. It's the letter to the church at Ephesus as recorded in Revelation chapter 2. Now, this is a church with rich history. It's an important center for early Christianity. It was founded by Paul and some of his traveling companions during Paul's first missionary journey, uh, probably with Aquila and Priscilla, and, and Paul started this church, and then Paul went on and to other places, and there's a guy named Apollos who spends some time there. And then, then Paul comes back on his second missionary journey, and he spends three years as their pastor, teaching them, encouraging them, directing them. Then he leaves, and there's a young guy named Timothy who becomes pastor of the church. You know, Timothy from 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, that Timothy. And Paul gives them instructions about, about what they should pay attention to and what they shouldn't pay attention to. And he says, you know, pay attention to solid teaching and don't give in to arguments and don't give in to little pity, petty little fights and don't give in to heresy and stuff like that. Eventually, there's a guy named John, the Apostle John, the one who writes Revelation, who tradition says spends time in Ephesus because it is a main center of Christianity in those days. They've had good pastors. They've had good leaders. They've had solid teaching. They've paid attention to solid teaching. And now God sends a message through his apostle John to them probably in the early 90s AD, 40 years after their founding and years after Paul's death and his, no, his influence is no longer there. And this is the letter written to him. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. Write this letter to the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. This is the message from Jesus. It's just a fancy way of saying that. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And he starts out with an affirmation. He said, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. You've discovered they're liars. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. Now I'm imagining them sitting in church that day where somebody says, we got a letter here and it's from Jesus and he's got a message for us and he says, I know all the things you're done. You know, you've patiently suffered for me without quitting. They go, yeah, high five. You don't tolerate evil teachers. Yeah, you know, they're going, they're feeling good. But then comes the but. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Literally, you have left your first love. The word left means forsaken, omitted, given up, neglected, left behind. You, there, there's something you've forgotten that you once had and then you let it go. You've forgotten your first love. 
Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand from among its place in the churches. This is it, this, but this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. No one's quite sure what the Nicolaitans did, um, except they were part of that group of uh, heretical teachers that the church resisted. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I'll give you fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Now understand, this was a group of people, this was a church that was doing good things. They worked hard for Jesus' sake. They endured hardship. They were deeply concerned about doctrinal correctness. Paul had told young Timothy to pay attention to stuff like that 40 years previous to, to that. And, and they were still doing that. They were theologically correct. They were proper. But they'd forgotten something. They'd forgotten the love that Jesus had for them. And they'd forgotten and gotten a little casual about their love for him. And as a result of being casual about their love for him, they were casual about their love for one another. They'd slipped from their first passion of Christ. And that had translated into the loss for others too. And I'm wondering if you've forgotten that a little bit. I'm wondering if you've gotten so busy living life, so busy being a college student, so busy doing all the stuff of college student life, that maybe you've forgotten the source of, the, of all this, which is the love of Christ showing up in our lives. Here's a question for you. Why did you first say yes to Jesus? I remember a little bit about why I first said yes to Jesus and when I first said yes to Jesus. Uh, I, I think I was four, maybe five. I remember Mrs. Green was teaching the class, and it was in the basement of... Austin Wesleyan Methodist Church at 500 North Laramie Street, Chicago, Illinois, 60644. I remember that. I lived a half a block away. I remember Mrs. Green had an artificial leg. That has nothing to do with the story. I just remember that. She lived next door to the church. I was walking up the steps to my dad's office once and looked into their dining room window and her leg was laying on the floor of the table. That freaked me out. But I remember Mrs. Green talking to us about Jesus loving us and about if you want to go to heaven, you say yes to him. And so as a four-year-old, I said yes. I don't know what sins I had committed by the time I was four, but I confessed them and said yes to Jesus. His love was special to me. But I have to confess, as, as I aged, I had to make other decisions for Christ. I had to make repeated decisions for Christ. And all of them weren't decisions based on the overwhelming love of Jesus. As I got older, there were some moments when fear was involved, when my life wasn't being lived as, it, as I ought to live it. We used to have things that we called revival meetings. They were like summit, kind of, except for, the, for a ch local church. And, and the, the speaker would come, and he would speak all week long. He would start on a Sunday, Sunday he would end the next Sunday. And, and all week long, he would go to church, and he would give invitations to the altar. And, and if... My theory was if, if you didn't respond, the last, the last Sunday of the revival meeting, he always preached a sermon to scare you into faith. 
He would, he would talk to you about, about the importance of saying yes to Jesus. And if you didn't, you might spend eternity separated from him, him in hell. He would talk about that. And then he would always give some kind of illustration about somebody who was, who was there in the church. And the invitation was coming. And God was tugging on their heart. And they knew they ought to go, but they resisted. And they knew they ought to go, but they resisted. And they knew they ought to go, but they resisted. And the service ended. And they walked out to the church and crossed the street and got hit by a car and died before they had a chance to make the right decision. I think he was trying to scare us into faith. Here's the problem with fear-based repentance. It only lasts as long as the fear lasts. And after a while, we get used to the fear, and it no longer has an effect on us. I know sometimes I came to times of confession because I had made a mess of my life, and I just was feeling miserably guilty. And I was miserable and guilty, and I wanted rid of the guilt, and so... I came and confessed to Christ to get rid of the guilt. But that kind of repentance only lasts as long as the guilt lasts. And after a while, we get numb to the guilt. And it doesn't motivate us anymore. You know, the Bible does not tell us that Jesus came to scare us into faith. It does not. The Bible does not tell us that Jesus came to guilt us into faith, that he came to judge us and condemn us. It does not. What it says is that he loved us. First John chapter 4, the same guy who wrote Revelation wrote a short epistle that's just a few pages to the left of Revelation. Verse 9, God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world. How much he loved us by sending his son so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we first loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. The spiritual reality that God thinks works best is love. And when we're amazed by God's amazing love for us, something clicks. Jesus, God himself, became one of us, a human. And he lived for a while among us and he devoted his life to reconcile us to the Father because of love. God loves you. Do you get that? Or have you grown so used to it that you've lost the amazement of it? Would you do something for me? Something for you too? Would you whisper out loud this phrase, God loves me? Go ahead, just whisper it out loud. God loves me. Now say it again, but just a little louder. God loves me. Now, would you declare that? God loves, me. God loves me. He really does, you know. Some of us don't feel worthy of his love, and none of us is worthy of his love, except he says, well, I love you anyway. And when we begin to understand that, when we begin to be amazed by that, when that thought comes alive in us, Joy comes alive in us as well. Some of us on our way to get pizza have left that amazement behind. Some of us have begun to take it for granted. We've lived with it so long that we've gotten used to it. We've gotten blasé about it. When we grow blasé about his love, it's easy to grow casual about our obedience. Now, we justify ourselves by saying we believe the right things. Maybe in chapel we quote the Apostles' Creed together or we sing it in a song. 
I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe the Holy Spirit. I believe the three in one. You know, we sing that stuff. But we've grown stale. <clears throat> in fact, some of us are stale enough that we make fun of students who aren't. We think, oh, they're just over the top. <clears throat> I'm wondering if the same Jesus who sent a message to the church at Revelation might send a message to you today. I know your deeds. I know you passed New Testament. I know you passed Intro to Theology. You only got to see, but you passed it. I know you go to chapel. But what happened to your love? What happened to your amazement? I'm wondering if you would listen. I hope you have ears to hear. Would you take time to listen today? The scripture says, look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first.